begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, I, as I mentioned at the beginning of our service, we're starting a new sermon series where we're going to look, um, we're going to ask how we can love the people and the places where we live. To put that maybe more directly, what we're going to talk about over the next four Sundays is um, what impact can we have on the people and the places that we live. And I'm going to I'm going to drill that down even a little bit more. Specifically, um, how can we share Christ with the people and the places that we live? Okay, so over the next four Sundays, that's what we want to look at. That we want to ask of ourselves, um, how can God use us? How does he use you to bring a, a, a life-saving, remarkably unique message to the people in your life, in your neighborhoods, and in your communities? Um, so that's what we're going to do. That's kind of where we're headed. Um, but, I, but I think we want to ask ourselves, at least right off the bat, what, what does this look like, right? So if, we, if we're going to share Christ with the world, with our families, with our communities, um, what's, what role does that look like? Or what role do I play in that? Uh, have any of you ever seen the movie Dunkirk? So we've seen that one. That was a, uh, yeah, it came out recently. Uh, it's a fantastic movie, uh, um, beautifully shot. Um, but it was specifically about a certain incident that happened in 1940 uh, on the beach in Dun Dunkirk. Some of you are historians here, so I know you probably. Does anyone know what the, what the um, the the operation was named at Dunkirk? That's probably hard. It was called Operation Dynamo. So the movie Dunkirk. Um, is, a, is a, a movie made about that operation, Operation Dynamo. Um, and it was a little bit different than maybe some other war movies that are made, um, talking about offensives. And, and usually if you, if you do a war movie, there's atrocity and there's difficulties, there's pain and struggle. But more often than not, usually a, a movie about war ends in victory, right? Victory. Um, the kind of unique thing about that movie, Dunkirk, was that it wasn't necessarily about a, a victory. Uh, it wasn't necessarily even about a battle. It was, it was specifically about Operation Dynamo, which was an evacuation. So um, on its surface, it was a little bit different movie and a little bit different idea. So the entire thing was about, about retreating. <laughs> it was about evacuation. But here, here's why I think it's important for us and why I wanted to look at it today was um, it was specifically about saving lives, okay? So, so not a battle to, to win, but it, it was, a, it was a, um, an operation that its only purpose was to save lives, okay? Now, some of you maybe, uh, if you've seen the movie, you probably saw a visual uh, um, representation of it, um, and some of you are historians, maybe a little, know a little bit more about it, but uh, here's a map of specifically what was happening. So, um, early in the war, uh, the German Blitzkrieg had had just overrun most of France, and, um, and the French army and the British army uh, were, were on their heels, so to speak, right? They were on their heels because they had just come at such a furious rate. And so the Germans were coming in from the north, in from the south, and the only escape for, for hundreds of thousands of British and French troops was to try to get across the English Channel. That was the only way that they were going to get, get out. But here was the problem. They couldn't swim it, and they didn't have enough boats to get across. So what do you do when you have hundreds of thousands of lives on a beach with a German blitzkrieg pouring in on you, right? 
This was the, this was the issue. This was what Operation Dynamo was. So you can see here, uh, at Dunkirk, uh, they had to evacuate across to get to Dover. The red lines are kind of different evacuation routes that those, that those ships took. Um, but this was nothing more than trying, trying to save lives, right? Trying to save lives. Now, uh, they didn't have enough military boats to do that. And if you saw the movie Dunkirk, you know uh, that they, they enlisted um, other boats to try to save lives. One of the most famous ones uh, in that battle um, was this one right here. This was called the Medway Queen, paddleship Medway Queen. And you can, well, you can kind of see on the back end, there's, it's a paddleship, right? That battleship, or not that battleship, that paddleship alone evacuated 7,000 men off that beach, okay? So trip after trip after trip, right? So 7,000 men, 7,000 lives were saved, not because of a Navy destroyer um, or any of those things, but because of a, a paddleship. Now, here's what's fascinating about that paddleship. Um, why was it built? Well, not to go to war, not to fight battles, right? But specifically, it was a ferry ship. Its sole purpose, the reason that ship existed was to bring people from from one place to another. In this instance, it brought 7,000 men from danger to safety. Okay? Um, they, they, they call it the, the Queen, of, the queen of, uh, of Dunkirk, right? Uh, the Medway Queen, because it saved so many lives. Because so many men and their families got to continue living because a ferry ship was able to take them to safety. I think that's a pretty good illustration for us when we dive into this topic of what is our role in our world as believers? And we're going we're gonna to talk real high level today about all the things that kind of happen in our world, but, but at, the, at the heart of it, this is the joy we have as believers, right? Is to, is to um, bring Christ to others and therefore bring them to safety, right? Um, Christ won the battle and fought the battle. We get to simply give that good news and... and in a sense, ferry people to him, okay? So that's kind of the idea of where we're going to head today. Um, our role is simply to bring that life-saving news to those that are lost and perishing without Christ, okay? Now, as I mentioned, uh, we are starting this Love Local series, and those of you that have been with us, you know we do this, do this every single year. Uh, this is a picture. These are miners from Frederick, so here in Carbon Valley. So... Um, the reason I use this is that every place and every community has history, doesn't it, right? Um, sometimes talk about that. We're not the first Christians here or the last ones. We're not the first people here or the last ones, right? Um, that there have been those that came before us and those that will come after us. But I think the thing that, that we focus on, especially as believers here in Carbon Valley, is um, we have the opportunity, you have the opportunity to bring Christ to the people that you live with, in your neighborhoods, in your communities, the families that your kids go to school with. Uh, um, those are our opportunities at this time and in this moment. And so we love locally, okay? We love the people and the place that we live. We cannot, and on some level we'll get overwhelmed if we, if we, if we think about the magnitude of, of trying to bring Christ to the entire world or trying to fix the woes of the entire world, it's absolutely overwhelming. 
And I'm convinced that if we go that big, we end up actually not doing anything at all. But here's the beautiful part of it. If we drill down, God has given each and every one of you people in your life who do not know Christ. People in your life who are searching, who are longing, who um, um, want nothing more than to find answers for the problems, for the issues that they're suffering, right? So when we talk about, and when we have this sermon series on Love Local, that's what we focus on. Say, um, you and I individually maybe can't change the world, but we absolutely can change the lives and trajectory of the people that God has put into our world, okay? That matters. We're going to see as we get into our text. That matters to our God above, um, and that matters to us as believers as well, okay? So that's kind of where we're having it. Big picture, as we love local, that's what we want to look at. Uh, here's, if you like to fill things in, if you like to get gold stars on your homework, you get to fill this all in. Uh, we'll have a few fill-in-the-blanks kind of as we go, but, uh, but we'll kind of have three parts to, our, to the sermon today as we walk through the text and, and kind of see uh, um, specifically how are we loved uniquely, but even more specifically, what, what unique things can you bring to the people in your lives and in our community, okay? So let's jump into our text this morning. You're welcome to follow along with me in your bulletin if you'd like, uh, or on the screen here as well. I'm going to start out where I'm just going to read verses 1 through 7 for us today. So beginning at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, uh, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Okay, so let's set the, the, um, the circumstances for what's happening in the book of Acts here. Um, um, Pentecost had already happened, right? So Peter had proclaimed Christ. He had, he had, he had um, preached this beautiful Pentecost sermon. And lo and behold, what happened? People believed. People came to faith, right? Now, um, that happened in chapter 2. We're in chapter 4 now. And um, not surprisingly, what are Peter and John and all those believers continuing to do? Oh, yeah. Continuing to talk about Jesus, right? Uh, unabashedly talk about Jesus. And so, um, you talk, you know, you kind of go back to, um, he, here's this high point that we call Pentecost. When, when there are thousands that come to faith in Jesus, and on some level we'd say this is, right, this is something we celebrate. In fact, Pentecost is a beautiful Sunday that we celebrate, right? Um, but you fast forward to chapter 4 here, now we're starting to see um, the, the twofold implications of what had happened at Pentecost. And I say twofold. Um, number one, more people are coming to faith. <laughs> in fact, exponentially right? Uh, more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus, but they also are getting confronted now. Now, as you even heard who was there talking to um, Peter and to John, your mind maybe slipped back a little bit to Holy Week. So remember, um, this is the same group of men who um, a few months earlier 
had arrested Jesus, falsely tried, convicted, and nailed to a cross. So now, imagine yourself as Peter or John (laughs) preaching, and then this is the group that comes and confronts you. I would say on some level, probably nerve-wracking. Um, they, they had already put Jesus to death. What, who, who were Peter or John? Who were they, right? Uh, um, um, was that going to be their exact same fate? And so they, they throw them in jail. And you, you have to wonder if Peter and John in that moment said, Is, you have to wonder on some level that they maybe had started to do a cost-benefit analysis to this Jesus thing, right? No, Seriously. I mean, they were humans, right? These are, these, are, these are men who had families, who had jobs, who had people that they loved. And so here we are just after the resurrection. Jesus had been put to death. They're now telling others about Jesus. This is not rocket science. They may have been thinking in their own mind, if we keep talking about this Jesus guy, we will die too. And therefore, should we keep doing that? <laughs> Surely that went through their heads, right? Surely there were fears that were, that were on, on, heavy on their shoulders, right? Um, all the same things that I think they, uh, that we worry about when we share our faith surely were there for Peter and John, which makes it even more amazing how clearly Peter doubles down on the exact same thing he had said earlier, right? And this is maybe an opportunity for us to kind of back out just a little bit. Um, In a few more verses, Peter uh, unequivocally makes a truth claim, okay? Unequivocally uh, makes a truth claim um, about Jesus, about his death, his resurrection, and where salvation comes from in eternity, okay? And we're going to get to it in just a little bit, but he is not nibbling around the edges at it. He is not kind of sliding into it slowly, Peter says there is no other name. It is Christ and it is Christ alone. Okay. In no other terms, Peter's making a truth claim. Um, You don't have to admit this, but um, maybe even as I read this text, um, if you're maybe a little bit newer to Christianity uh, um, or had maybe not heard this text in a while, um, as I read through that and as Peter um, so directly and boldly makes this truth claim, maybe a part of you kind of went, hmm, that's a little too truthy, right, Peter? That's a, little, that's a little too bold. That's a little too direct, okay? If you felt like that this morning or if you've ever felt like that, let me, let me just... Let me say this, you're not, you're not alone. And the truth is, um, you're not alone because in some sense, truth claims within the world in which we live um, cause discomfort, don't they? And so that's what I, we want to back out just a little bit to that idea of when we um, are going to go into our communities to proclaim truth, how is that going to be received in the world and the culture in which we live in? Um, it's going to be mixed. Because generally, we live in a world and in 21st century America where truth is not one thing, it, truth is relative. So without getting too deep into the weeds of some of the philosophical underpinnings of where we are in 21st century America, um, we are now what some have called a post-postmodern 
America, but postmodernism is is that there is no truth, that it's true if it's true to you. So you choose your mirror, that's your truth, and as long as you're passionate enough about it, or at times louder about it than someone else, then that is your truth to you, and you're not allowed to say someone's truth is not true. It's just, it's all relative, right? Now, if you've already sensed a little bit of an issue with that and with postmodernism, um, you're way ahead of the game. And in fact, most philosophers already uh, have understood this for, for uh, um, 10, 15 years, that that postmodern truth claim is a truth in and of itself, isn't it? Right? So that philosophy falls back on itself. If you say there is no such thing as truth, I just said there was, didn't I? Right? So there's a little bit of an issue there. Here's where it becomes even more of a problem. It's remarkably hard to actually live your life according to that there is no truth. It works okay for a little while, but at some point, your truth will come into conflict with someone else's truth. Then what do you do? Right? Now where do you turn? Okay? So, um, when, when Peter makes a truth claim and you feel on some level a little bit uh, uneasy about it, um, just understand, some of that is just the culture in which you live in and what, and, and what you've grow, maybe grown up in, right? Um, so, here's the reality, though, with that. Um, the, the truth is, everyone makes truth claims, don't they? The only question is whether or not we are transparent and honest enough about recognizing that fact. So, so um, everyone has to, we all have to live according to a belief, according to a philosophy, according to a religion, according, something guides your life, right? It's often said everyone worships, the only question is who or what do we worship, right? Um, the very same thing is true of truth. So everyone lives according to a truth or truths. The only question is what is the truth that you're letting guide you, okay? So... Everyone has truths. Everyone lives according to truths. Peter, in our text here today, just plainly states it. (laughs) He says, my truth is Jesus Christ. My truth is a Savior who uh, um, came from eternity, lived his life on my behalf, died sacrificially, and rose again. And so Peter, in no uncertain terms, says, um, this is my worldview. This is how I live my life. This is who I follow. This is my truth. Okay? Now, what does that mean for you and I? Well, I think we're in the very same place that Peter and John were. When they, when they preached their sermon, their, and when Peter made his truth claim, the reality of it is the world in which these disciples lived, the world in which early Christianity um, um, was birthed into and grew, was very similar to ours in modern America. It was what we would call a pluralistic society, right? The pluralistic society. Um, so you go either within Judaism or you go into the Roman Empire and they said, you can worship any God that you want. Makes no difference to us. In fact, um, we, we know in Book of Acts later in Athens, they said they had, they had idols to almost every single God under the sun and even one that just had like fill in the blank God here just so they didn't miss anybody, right? So that was the Roman Empire. So this was, the, uh, Christianity was born into a pluralistic society that said you can worship and do anything you want 
right? Just don't tell me I can't do what I want. Sound familiar? Okay, it does. I mean, it does. And so um, into that pluralistic society steps Christ and early Christianity. And, and, and here's what we notice about our text here today. Did Peter water it down at all? No. Did, did, Peter, um, did Peter say, well, I'll just, I'll just kind of conveniently set aside some things and talk about others? N- no. Right? And, and we don't just have Peter and John for it, but we the entire birth of the Christian church. In fact, on some level, what were those early Christians known for? It was for uh, um, speaking truth, specifically about Christ, but even at times in opposition to the culture and the pluralistic world in which they lived. And now you're saying, okay, was that problematic for those Christians? Yeah, in a sense, they died for it. They lost jobs for it. They lost families for it. So yeah, it, it was not easy. It was not, uh, um, um, it, they were not received with open arms in some places. And yet, even in our text, as, as Peter and John are thrown in jail, it's, it's almost like a, an addendum to that phrase. It says, they were thrown in jail, but many believed. And it happened over and over and over again. And hearts and lives were changed over and over and over again. And it wasn't from pretending as though there was nothing true. It wasn't from pretending and, or downplaying certain aspects of Christ or Christianity. It wasn't from simply just saying, yeah, you know, stepping back. The truth is, it was from them humbly and yet boldly stepping forward with the truth of Christ, with the forgiveness that we find in Him. Okay? That was the truth, the beautiful truth that Peter, those early Christians were able to speak. It's the very same truth that you and I have. And, and, it, and it stands out and it changes lives. Uh, there's a quote from a man named to- Toyohiko Kagawa. Um, he came to faith in Christ a little bit later in his life. And he reflected back on, um, he, he had lived his life in a pluralistic society, lots of religions, lots of philosophies, lots of Lots of paths in a sense, right? But had come to faith in Jesus. Toyohiko says this, I am grateful for Shinto, for Buddhism, for Confucianism. I owe much to these faiths, yet they could not meet me at the moment of my heart's deepest needs. I was a pilgrim journeying on a long road that had no turning. I was weary, I was footsore, I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches, teaches great compassion, but since the beginning of time, who has ever said, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many unto remission of sin? What was his point there? Never was there a religion or a philosophy where the divine said, I will come to you. Rather than forcing us to climb to him, God came to you in Christ, being born in a manger in Bethlehem, ultimately giving his life on the cross outside the city walls in Jerusalem. That's the beautiful truth that changed his heart and his trajectory. And it wasn't because he hadn't encountered lots of other philosophies or religions, right? It's because that beautiful truth 
of God made man and the sacrificial nature of Jesus Christ was unlike anything else that he had found in the world. And that very same reality is true for you and I. And that's the message you have, we have, to be able to take into our pluralistic postmodern world. A more beautiful truth about Christ. Okay. Specifically, what does that look like, right? Which will lead us into our next one. If you're filling in blanks, this is our first one. A more beautiful truth, right? Um, We'll read uh, verses 8 through 12 in our text next. It says this, "Uh, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Okay? So Peter gets to the heart of the matter. What unique message do we have to bring to our world? The first is you, you have a more beautiful truth. But the second is, um, you, you have a, a, a truth that answers the reality of the world in which we live in a way that, that nothing else does. Martin Luther understood this uh, Protestant reformer. He said this when talking about um, the impact of, of, of that message of Christ. He says, the law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe in this and all things are already done. Now in this, Luther was contrasting kind of two different paths. Sometimes call it a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. And you can see it on the first, right? You are not saved by working harder, by being a shinier Christian, by doing more, um, by being better, right? And all of us can-do Americans kind of like that idea. But that is not where your salvation comes from. That is not where our salvation comes from, Right? Um, We are not saved by our works and by what we do. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial and innocent death on the cross for you. Luther highlights it here, right? Because there's no end to the law. How much is enough? How much is enough, right? But grace speaks differently. Christ was enough for you. No matter who you are, where you come from, Christ was enough for you. Um, this is what theologians will call theology of the cross, right? Theology of the cross. It is through the cross, through Christ's suffering, through that sacrifice and that gracious gift to us that we are forgiven, that we are loved, right? And that we are able to bring that truth to the world around us. Now, why does that matter in the world in which we live? I think it's this. Because there are lots and lots of your family and friends and even ourselves at times that look around and say, I've been a really good person and I've worked really, really hard and these are the ways that things should go and yet they're not. And so there's something broken either with God above or there's something broken in me. Right? And that's ultimately where many, many get to. But the theology of the cross says, There's nothing broken with God above, and we are all broken, 
But thanks be to God that we had a Savior that gave his life in the place of ours. That through the cross you are forgiven, you are loved, um, and you are eternally valued by your God above. And, And that is a far more beautiful, honest, transparent answer to the brokenness, the pain, the evil, and the suffering that we see in our world um, than just saying, work harder, do more, be better. Because there's no end to that. And when it comes to our salvation, we'll never find the end of it. But thanks be to God that we have a Savior who did it in our place. So, you have a more beautiful truth, right? You have a theology of the cross, as well, right? Bring to our people around us. Okay. Final verse here then. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, this is kind of a little bit of a, uh, um, kind of just a closing thought on the section that we had. Um, But what's kind of fascinating here is the understated tone of it. Um, What were they amazed at? They were amazed at the boldness, the directness, the beautiful truth that these men were preaching about and teaching about. Um, They were amazed that the message that they were teaching was changing lives and increasingly so in the pluralistic world in which they lived in um, and that it just seemed so unschooled and ordinary. (laughs) Right? Here's the really wonderful thing. Um, Our God loves local. Our God loves our communities through you, right? Through every single one of you. No matter where you come from, no matter what gifts God's given you, he uses you, right? Um, Each of your mission fields is slightly different, but God says there is no, no one is left idle in God's economy. No one is just left sitting on the bench, Every single one of us have the opportunity of bringing that beautiful truth, that theology of cross to the people around us, okay? Um, and in the subsequent weeks, that's what we're going to look at. But I want to leave you with this. These are um, maybe, maybe just some um, practical ideas that we can take away with. As we share that beautiful truth, that theology of the cross with the people around us, I think these are things to remember. First is, it's, this is a loving truth, right? Christ says, speak the truth in love. Um, so someone once said, um, love without truth isn't actually love, and truth without love is not actually truth, okay? So love without truth isn't actually love, and truth without love is not actually truth. They go together. So we speak the truth in love, right? Um, uh, I, selflessness matters as believers, right? As Christ gave himself for you, we give of ourselves for others, right? Selfless. Life matters. This one matters increasingly, right? From the child that is in the mother's womb to the 105-year-old that's in the nursing home, God loves life and values life. All life, not based on what you can produce, what you can do, but from, from beginning to end, God loves life. And therefore, we as believers love life. Now, there's incredible implications for that. because that changes how we treat people, how we see people. That that has ramifications in in ethics and and all of these things, right? Human rights. God loves people. Therefore, as believers, we love people as well and love life. Um, Power isn't played. This is a real fascinating one. It kind of goes back to um, that truth is relative idea because many will say, say, um, there is no such thing as truth, but I'm going to use my truth um, to make a power play against your truth. 
So many in our, you'll see this, many in our world will, will say there isn't any truth, but how you wield power is what really matters. So my cause versus your cause, my party versus your party. Um, we, really all of life is just a matter of like moving chess pieces around. Can I maneuver my power versus your power? Leverage the power I have versus yours, either for my own good or to, to, um, to, to put you off, right? So much of our world... Um, is nothing more than a manipulative power play of moving chess pieces around. Um, but with our God above, he has the ultimate power, and we don't need to play that game as believers, right? We don't need to use power against power. We simply need to be messengers of the ultimate power of Christ and what he's done for us, right? Um, the last two, or these two kind of go together. I think our tone matters as you share Christ. It matters how you do that, right? Let's be quick to listen, right? Rather than to speak. And the last one, this is the reality, is you will suffer, (laughs) right? This isn't how you're supposed to end a sermon. (laughs) But you will. We will suffer. As you share that beautiful truth, you will suffer. But some will believe and some will be changed. Um, Our last fill in the blank, people matter most, right? They mattered most to Christ above. They ought to matter to us as believers as well, right? People matter. No matter where they come from, no matter what they look like, um, we have the opportunity to bring that beautiful truth to them. Uh, Remember Dunkirk? Uh, The Medway Queen saved 7,000 people, right? So it said, okay, saved all kinds of people. Um, But if you know that historical story a little bit, it wasn't just the Medway Queen. So they estimate that 1,200 what they call small ships, also saved people, okay? Small boats, right? Another 1,200 uh, um, um, ships were there just taking people to safety, right? So it wasn't one big ship. It was hundreds, thousands of ships that brought them to safety. Uh, Winston Churchill estimated, um, and this was found out kind of after the fact, um, that he expected that they were only going to be able to save 45,000 men off that beach, everyone else would die. He said, we don't, we can't. The best estimate is we can only save 45,000 people. That's it. Everyone else is going to die and they're going to they're take everything else. Um, after 1,200 small ships came and started pitching in, after the Medway Queen came and started pitching in, uh, all said and done, they had saved 338,000 men. Okay. Lots of ships. Lots of people bringing to safety. Lots of lives were saved, right? Um, And the look on their faces was joy, right? And I think that can serve as a good illustration for us as we go into our world, as we go into this sermon series. Um, God uses you. And there will be times when, when, when you suffer, when it's hard, but some will be saved. Some will come to know that beautiful truth in Christ. Um, and, and there's no greater gift that we can give to someone than that. That their sins are forgiven, that they are eternally loved, and that through the name of and work of Jesus Christ, eternal life is secure. Amen.